0: We continue with our series this morning on the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at the next beatitude from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, while this beatitude is similar to the first one on being poor in spirit, it does have a different focus. And clearly the Lord thought two separate beatitudes were in order. So they're closely related, but they're distinct. There is perhaps... Um, even a kind of progression in the Beatitudes. So, the poor in spirit mourn. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Poverty of spirit produces mourning for one's own sins. The sins of the church and the world. And such people lack the altitude, as we've said. Right? They lack the high horse or the self-assured certainty to be anything but meek. Poverty of spirit produces mourning. Mourning produces meekness. So I want to look at the text this morning under two headings, meekness and the inheritance. They're there on your outline, meekness and the inheritance. So first, the meekness itself. Meekness here has two dimensions, internal and external. Or we could say meekness before God, and then meekness before men. So let's, let's divide it that way, and let's take internal meekness. Meekness before God first. Meekness, like all virtue, is something open and bare before the eyes, before the face of God. God knows, apart from what others may think of us or see. In us, and so it's important to remember here that these beatitudes—they cannot be faked, and God cannot be fooled. And it's important to hear this: nor will God, in His goodness, accept any substitutes. Like God is committed to making us meek. No matter how ferociously our natural personalities may be bent against meekness. He won't accept any stunted distortions. And this is one of the things about the Sermon on the Mount. Any reader of the Sermon on the Mount, or, or simply a reader of the Beatitudes, is going to see with clarity that one will need to be broken. right, Shattered slain, overthrown, remolded to acquire this flourishing blessedness. Of this we can be certain. And if we don't have this slaying and being made alive, this vertigo in our spiritual lives, we will not have spiritual transformation. So the Beatitudes ask us this question. Do you want to be spiritually transformed? Are you kind of content with the way things are? There's a way to live your whole Christian life and sort of avoid the Beatitudes. Meekness, then, meekness is rooted deep in the interior reservoir of a human life. Deep down in the roots of a personality. And if one doesn't take a good, hard, long, critical look down there, right, into the unconquered territory of our souls, then one is not going to make any progress in bringing forth this or any other fruit of the Spirit. So, ruthlessness is another way to put it, right? Ruthlessness with oneself before God, is necessary to advance in the school of meekness. We say it often, but people in general are too easy on themselves and too hard on other people. We need to be much more ruthless with ourselves, much more easy with other people. And this kind of ruthlessness is necessary, right, to advance The school of meekness is a school where we cut our way forward against the grain of our natures only with strenuous effort, which may be why we often see too little of it. So it's deep down then, in the tumult and the raging and the roiling emotional and thought life of a person, deep down there, meekness must conquer. Mildness. Has to tame the, the wild horses of human passion. You know, the great Bible translator, John Wycliffe, translated this verse. Listen to this translation Blessed are the mild men. That's a, that's a sentiment almost completely absent to my ears. Blessed are mild men. So what are we talking about when we speak of meekness? Right? The word essentially means gentle or humble. Gentle or humble. The meek are calm and quiet. Their soul is composed. They're childlike before God. In our own minds... To be small before God means we must see God in his grandeur, in his glory, in his infinite being. We must really have an interior sense of this. I think here again of the prophet Isaiah, who when he sees the transcendence of God, he thinks that all the nations are less than nothing. Nothing and less than nothing, he says, void and empty. It's not only as creatures before the Creator that we are small, It's as sinners before the holy God that we are to be meek. Now this is not, this doesn't mean we're engaging in some kind of constant self-flagellation, you know, beating yourself up or some kind of false humility. This is not unnecessary self-abasement. This is just living in reality. The thinner God is, the thicker our lack of meekness is. So the meek have a sober view of themselves before the face of the triune God. So in this, then, we are to be imitators of the Master, God incarnate, God incarnate who said, astonishingly, learn of me, for I am meek. I am meek and lowly of heart That's an astonishing thing there's one of the puritan prayers in the valley of vision starts out addressing God as thou terrible meek God is dreadfully meek and when God becomes man he stands in front of us and says now you can learn of God by learning of me cuz i am meek and lowly of heart so it's possible, right? It is possible to learn a lot about Christianity and the Christian worldview and know all kinds of christian stuff and not have learned Christ. Right? We're to be learning Christ, and to learn Christ is to learn meekness. So this internal meekness, if it's real, if it's real, is going to manifest itself in external meekness, meekness as it relates to others. This is the second aspect. The meek person is dispossessed of themselves and of self-assertion because they're wholly possessed by another, namely God. And that makes them meek or gentle toward others. There's There's a translation, the NEB, the New English Bible, translates the text as, Blessed are the gentle in spirit. Blessed are the gentle in spirit. This means the meek are civil. Right? They're courteous. They're soothing. They're not needlessly aggressive and argumentative. They don't throw their weight around or seek leverage. Right? To be meek is a grand liberation. It means to give up grasping and rage and self-assertion and defensiveness. To be meek is to seek to be done with pride and boasting and vain glory. Because those who are meek, their intemperance has been tamed. It's their joy to show deference to others or to place their needs above their own. What has happened? The meek have had the harshness of their natural personality hammered out of them by the grace of God. Often through affliction, by the way. Like the master, then, they have this deep tenderness toward others. Now, it's important to see in this context and throughout the history of Israel and the church, meekness, the meek themselves, tended to be poor or oppressed, or they would often be afflicted or suffering. And yet... They maintain a sort of calm, quiet trust. They don't fret. They don't plot their revenge. They know how to be still. Be still and know that I am God. To wait for the Lord. And that means the meek are non-aggressors. They're not easily provoked. That's one of the litmus tests of meekness. How, how easy is it to provoke you or me? Indeed, it's not just that they're not easily provoked. Like Jesus, the meek are submissive under provocation. Think of that, right? It's in the midst of all the daily little provocations that they are submissive. The meek consider it absurd that they fight fire with fire or that they take vengeance into their own hands. Like their Lord, they would rather endure evil than strike back. This cuts against the grain of the whole American public culture and discourse right now. What does it say of Jesus? Peter tells us this. For when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. As I said before, we can't stop from retaliating online or in a text. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, what he did was he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He trusted the eschatological judgment of God. The meek don't have a backup plan. So the meek seek to imitate Jesus' non-retaliatory, non-vindictive ethic of suffering love. A meekness which is so alien to us that it pleads for its murderers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. We can't even choke a prayer out like that for our political enemies. Much less people set on killing us. And yet, meekness is not weakness. You can already see, this is not spinelessness. This is not pure passivity. It's not because Jesus was naturally shy or something like that or lacked vigor. You know, this idea of the vigorous man was important to the ancient Greco-Romans. It's very important to Americans, too. Americans have been shaped by this profoundly. And such people did not and do not care much for meekness as a virtue. I'm going to go out on a limb here now and guess that in the whole course of the pandemic over the last year, Probably nobody has spoken to you about the importance of meekness. They saw meekness, the the Greeks did, and, and many Americans do. They saw it as servility, as the mindset of slaves. What they preferred was the heroic man of valor, right? Men of spirit, generals, statesmen, who from their point of view really did control and inherit the earth. Men of self-assertion. If you know a little bit about the 19th century atheist Friedrich Nietzsche, he forcefully expressed the same contempt, despised Christianity for many reasons, but considered it a slave mentality because it told people to turn the other cheek and to be meek. He thought we ought to be glamorizing, forceful, assertive, courageous men of antiquity. Right, But all of this, all of this, is a massive misunderstanding of the virtue that our Lord here, the God of heaven and earth made flesh, pronounces his benediction on. Right, this meekness is most definitely not the Greco-Roman ideal. It is most definitely not the American ideal. But it is the very opposite of weakness. The very opposite. It's fidelity to God under provocation. Anyone can strike back. Anyone can lash out. Anyone can assert themselves. Anyone can fight for their territory and their spot. This is active, steadfast faith, purity of devotion. It is the height of moral strength and dignity. This is a hard meekness that Jesus says in the Beatitudes will go on to hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness. And again, again, our Lord is the model here. The prophet Isaiah says of the Messiah that he does not quarrel or raise his voice in the streets. He's not an agitator. He doesn't break a bruised reed. Or quench a smoldering wick. Like he's not a bull in the china shop. He's gentle with brokenness. And yet he does, and he shall lead justice to victory, the prophet says. And so this meekness comes with a moral zeal to do what's right. And in our Lord Jesus, it was not incompatible with making a whip. And driving the money changers out of the temple. Jesus would never do that to defend his own person. But to defend the purity of the worship of his father's house, he would. Think of Moses. I don't think anyone is going to accuse Moses of being a wallflower. He was called the meekest man on earth. And David, the warrior king... He says in Psalm 18 that it is the meekness of God which made him great. Now, if both men, Moses and David here, we're not speaking of their younger, earlier selves. Right? These are statements about their older, mature, broken selves. In them, then, we saw, as we see in the Lord, meekness is directly related to greatness in the kingdom of God. Now, given this beatitude here, it doesn't come out of thin air. Jesus is not manufacturing this stuff. In this beatitude, he's citing directly from Psalm 37, which was the Old Testament lesson this morning. So this is not simply a New Testament ideal. We saw it in our call to worship as well. And there we learn that the meek take refuge in God, Psalm 37. They commit their way to God. They dwell in the land that they are to inherit. They cultivate faithfulness. They wait for the Lord with active hope. Why? Well, if you read the psalm, it's because they know the end. They know the judge is coming. The judge of both the righteous and the wicked. And like the meek Jesus, they are content to leave things to him who judges justly. A reading of Psalm 37 will show us quite a bit about how the meek inherit the earth. And that brings me to the second point here, which is the inheritance itself. So all the Beatitudes, of course, we've seen this already, right? They all play on this paradox, right? The somewhat shocking contrast between the virtues that Jesus pronounces blessed And the rewards that he promises. But here the contrast is especially sharp and biting. The meek shall inherit the earth. Again, if anything, the opposite seems to be the case, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like the politically savvy inherit the earth to me. The powerful, the mighty, those who seek vengeance, those who take up the force of arms, they are the ones who control and dominate the earth. Anyone with a set of eyes can see this. Calvin says here, he says, the sons of this age believe that safety lies only in their sharp resistance to any wrong done to them. And thus they defend their lives with force of arms. Or maybe less dramatically, we think it's the rich, right? the corporate CEOs, maybe the tech companies are inheriting the earth, the big organizations, the people who wield levers of, of power, political power, now they are inheriting the earth. But I think Jesus means what he says, obviously. And I don't think there's any need to even spiritualize away the force of the promise here. You want to think about the current rulers of the nations, then they, they would do well, and we would do well, to remember Psalm 2. Right? there, God addresses their pretensions, and he laughs at their folly, and he tells the assembled kings that he's installed his own king. The risen son of David on Mount Zion. And it is this Christ, the text says, who will inherit the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will dash them like a potter's vessel. So we should not be dismayed by the political forces of this age. Paul tells us the rulers of this age are coming to nothing. They're coming to nothing. And thus in Christ, the meek one, the meek shall inherit the earth. Now, this inheritance has two dimensions. Now, this will be no surprise to anyone, I hope. One is the already dimension. One is the not yet dimension. Or to put it more simply, we taste our inheritance now. We inherit fully later. And I want to look at this, this inheriting of the earth. First the now and then the already Or now, the already, and then later, the not yet. So let's talk about inheriting now. The New Testament repeatedly tells us that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Spirit who is God, the Lord, the giver of life, who is worshipped with the Father and the Son. That gift of the Spirit is called the foretaste, or the earnest, or the down payment of our inheritance. Thus, we begin to enjoy our inheritance even now, through the Spirit. Think of that scene in Revelation. The saints who are being martyred in the book of Revelation are being sent to the glorious throne room of God and the Lamb, where their prayers are directing history contrary to all appearances. They exercise more political sway than all the world's potentates if we were but see into the invisible and heavenly realm. Though it looks as if they are impotent, dead in fact, non-actors in the global drama. Thus Paul can say to the church that having nothing, having nothing, Paul says, I yet possess all things. In Christ, he tells us, all things, all things are already ours, by faith, by promise. All things are Christ's, and you belong to Christ, and thus the meek are already being lifted up and tasting their inheritance. Secondly, though... This will be fully actualized, fully political and material and concrete, if you will, when the later, the not yet, is realized at Christ's advent. Inherit, a lot like glory, inherit is an eschatological word. It's a word which, oh, you can get a concordance out and find this out. It always points to the end. You don't get an inheritance gradually, right? That's called a salary. Or a trust fund or something. The inheritance is inherited at the end. Here we need to go back to the original promise God made to Abraham. Along with a seed, God made an actual land promise to Abraham the land of Canaan. The same land that was later conquered by Joshua and consolidated under David. The land was always mentioned pointing forward, if you will, as a type of a renewed world that Christ and his elect will inherit. Right? So the land was not restricted to Palestine, but it was a type or a picture of the saint's inheritance of a renewed cosmos, a renewed earth. We know this, for example, from Romans 4, where Paul says that Abraham is the heir of the world. Not just of Palestine, but the earth. More than this, Hebrews 11 tells us that as he wandered in the promised land, Abraham was actually seeking a city from God. The city which is to come. The city whose foundations and builder is God. The city which descends from heaven. Our inheritance does not emerge out of the forces of history. It descends at the end of the age. So thus, from the very beginning, from the very beginning... The land was a picture of a new heavens and a new earth that Christ, the seed of Abraham, and those in him were to possess. In fact, in Psalm 37, where Jesus actually takes this phrase, the meek inherit the land, even there it's clear, if you read it, that the context is eschatological. The meek will inherit the earth, even in Psalm 37, when God arises to judge and cuts the wicked off and uproots them forever. You can see that in Psalm 37. There's another angle on this inheritance that I think is often overlooked that I want to point out. In a deep way, it's obvious, I think, and utterly necessary, that the accent here be on the future. You should not lose sight of this Some of the Beatitudes will say theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This one says they shall, in the future tense, inherit the earth. So why the future orientation? Well, because the meek are God's poor ones, all of God's poor ones, the whole church, living and dead, right? And the church, rest assured, shall enter into its glorious inheritance together corporately, at the eschaton. Right? We don't have a situation here where some inherit now and some inherit later. right? Most of the meek ones who've ever lived are now dead. When are they going to inherit? They're going to inherit at the eschaton. So we have a situation where all believers get a foretaste now and the whole church enters its glory together later. But in either event, the meek shall inherit the actual earth, a renewed cosmos, a union of heaven and earth depicted in Revelation 21 and 22. This is why Peter, and this was in the the New Testament lesson this morning, this is why Peter says our inheritance is in heaven. Have you ever noticed that tension? Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. And then Peter says your inheritance is stored up for you in heaven. It's reserved there. It's precisely because it's in heaven. Because Christ himself and the triune God are our inheritance. That when Christ appears, he, if you will, heavenizes or transfigures the earth. And we inherit. What does Peter say? He says your inheritance is in heaven. It's undefiled, unfading, imperishable. There is no event or series of events Having to do with the American Republic, which can stain or diminish or defile your inheritance. It's kept for you in heaven, Peter says. The whole American experiment could disappear, and not a shred of eschatological glory would be stripped from Christ or from his saints. It's safe, your inheritance, like the meek, safe, secure from all alarms. Now, again, this is not just a nice piece of Christian theology, although it is that. Um, this is the heart of Christian hope. Right? We don't believe that we're just going to float off someday into heaven like the angels. Right? Right? Believing this, really believing this unbelievable future... This is what enables us to lay down our pride and our weapons and our constant fretting about the current state of affairs and our need for self-assertion, our tit-for-tatness, our desires for vengeance. If we must have the glory and the power now, then we are not going to be content with the foretaste. You only get a foretaste of your inheritance now. And then we won't be content to wait for the promise. And if that's the case, it's unlikely that we will be meek. You see the connection. This eschatological hope, this certain future inheritance, this is the mother of meekness here and now. This hope is the mother of meekness. Tear this hope out of your life and insist that we have to get our pound of flesh now and meekness will vanish from your life. Right? The absence of meekness is a sign of a deep unbelief in the coming promises of God. No eschatology, no eschatological orientation toward the coming of Christ, there will, then meekness will fade away. Patience will fade away. So if we're going to receive our inheritance... We have to follow the way of the meek lamb, and that means we have to walk in in, in the strength, the dignity of his way, which is the way of nonviolence. It's the way of non-retaliation. It's the mighty way of meekness. It is the way of the cross, and we are adverse to this way. Right 20 times a day, if we know our own hearts, we realize, oh, I'm adverse to this way. This doesn't fit me naturally. In this manner, Calvin says, in the midst of the wildness and rage of enemies, exposed and vulnerable, we live under God's protecting hand. And this, he says, is enough for the meek. These are Calvin's words. This is enough for the meek until at the last day they reach the inheritance of the world. See, Calvin knows the inheritance is largely future. You get a foretaste now, you get the fullness later. So the mystery of this beatitude is precisely this. Self-renunciation is the way to world domination. That's the mystery of this beatitude. Self-renunciation is the way to world dominion. The meek, and and rest assured, only the meek shall. Notice the certainty. The meek shall. It's assured. The meek shall inherit the earth. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth. I will be exalted over the nations. Amen.